welcome back to Doing Theology Thinking Mission. We have a super fun guest today, Jonathan Worthington. Uh, let me tell you about him. He got his PhD from Durham University. He is Vice President of Theological Education at Training Leaders International. He's the author of Creation in Paul and Philo and numerous other articles on creation in Paul and early Judaism. He's also interested in cross-cultural theological education and motivational theory. But most important, he's the husband of Lindsay for almost 19 years, and they got two girls who just celebrated birthdays. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Jackson, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it. You know, one of the things that's exciting to me about this conversation in particular is that the way I first became aware of you was because you gave a thoughtful but definitely challenging critique of my book. <laughs> right. I remember it well. And and you did not uh, mince words, but it was so gracious at the same time that you were, I don't want to say gutting me. That sounds too bad, but, but yeah. really laying it on. But I so appreciate the serious engagement that mm. you had. So that's where I first came about knowing you. And so I mm -hmm. came across one of your articles a little later and I said, well, I don't know what he thinks about me after that article, but I want to reach out because I like his ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I should, I should clarify that, that while, while uh, I and, and my co-author Elliot Clark, while we did kind of lay into some of the ideas that you had, which are responsible ideas. So that wasn't an issue at all, but while I did, you know, critique you and not hold back, I was fundamentally excited about the book and encouraging of the major ideas there. And so part of the part of the critique was my desire to actually promote your book to have people want to read it while also engaging you as deeply as I could on things that you and I disagree about in some in some ways. I did a brief response to I saw it. To, it was really helpful. Yeah. And one of the things that I really wanted people to get from that is this is how thoughtful interactions are supposed to happen mm -hmm. where it's not personal. You don't demonize the other side. You say, this is what I disagree with. And this is why. And, and then I read the longer review. And I, at one point you said, Hey, did you see this? I said, yeah, but there's just so much good meat there for me to respond to. There's no way I could do it <laughs> in, <laughs> right. in, in short form. I was like, cause yeah. it was so thoughtful. So I, I'm excited just because our conversation comes out of yeah that you know review process. So yeah, and I, I'm so grateful about that too. I, I like that that was the birth of us beginning to talk because I had read some something that you had written before before I engaged your book about uh, reading Romans through Eastern eyes, and you were kind of bringing up some of the issues about you know how should we engage people fellow brothers and sisters that we disagree with. Mm. Uh, there, there, there are some healthy ways to do this. So I was already appreciative mm. of how you engage people, not holding back, but also incredible grace, uh, fairness, uh, giving people the benefit of the doubt, not over-reading mm. or under-reading, fair mm. reading. So for, for us to be able to start engaging uh, over disagreement and appreciation at the same time, but with, mm. with Christian charity at the, at the heart of it, it's like, wow, man, this is the kind of friendship I want to nurture. Yeah, that's a core value of mine. And I found few people these days appreciate that because 
it, there's this unspoken rule that if you criticize family members, if you criticize fellow insiders, there's suspicion. You know, mm. I wrote I wrote something recently against some pretty big leaders, and mm. I got word that some internal emails were going around in, in circles going, we don't know if this guy's a friend or a foe. And I thought, I did yeah. not say anything mean, actually. I just challenged the argumentation and mm-hmm. automatically to be assumed a friend or foe, I thought, oh, come on, you know, anyhow. Right. We could yeah. talk about this part all day. And in fact, this is worthy of its own episode. Is this That's true. Is yeah. evangelical habits of dialogue or lack thereof? Yeah. yeah. You know, your specialty is in New Testament, but you're eclectic because you work in cross cultural theological education. And yet you study a lot of pedagogy and motivation theory. So, mm-hmm. uh, and you're a son of an academic. Is, is that what, right? Is, is that what got you yeah, interested yeah, in, in this other aspect? Uh, indirectly, um, yes, not not directly, not immediately. I grew up, so my, my father, Everett Worthington, he's a, a well-known psychologist. He's helped pioneer the, the psychological science study of forgiveness, and now it, that's grown into other virtues like humility. So he's been doing that for 45 years. So I grew up taking hikes in the mountains with my dad, and he's telling me about these crazy psychological experiments and and what they're learning. And I was just engrossed in the idea of human nature, psychological study from a young age, Mm. just rubbing shoulders with my dad. I did study psychology in my undergrad um, and, and so grew in that, but I didn't view myself as an academic. I wasn't really deeply wrestling with things at that stage. But then when God shifted some things in my life and I began to pursue uh, a deep, responsible study of, then it turned into to his word and theology, some of the kind of uh, soft virtues maybe that I had inherited from my dad and still appreciated in him started coming to life in ways they hadn't before. So my dad, in a sense, is responsible for some of my continued eclectic mm. or desires to have eclectic knowledge and skills as much as I can, while yet still specializing. And then since that has grown from being nurtured by my dad for 40 some years, he and I have actually been able to, to work together now. Mm. Uh, we wrote an article together, which was so much fun. Me from a, a theological and cross-cultural education perspective, him from studying virtue theory in psychology. And mm. getting able to do that just launched me still further. So yeah, yeah. he's responsible, but uh, kind of indirectly and, and uh, organically. So you're in, okay, so now you're investing all that kind of uh, composite knowledge and experience as mm-hmm. vice president for theological education at TLI, Training Leaders International. Tell people who are not familiar with TLI a little bit about it and then what it is you do in your position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I can tell you by uh, mentioning how I came across TLI, which was five years ago now. My wife and, and daughters and I had just moved back from the UK. We had been there for almost a decade. There were visa changes, so we had to come back to the States looking for a job. And I come across this ministry called TLI, Training Leaders International. 
At first, I wanted nothing to do with them, not because of them, but because I saw I'd have to raise my own support. And I thought, why, why would I do that? <laughs> so many other jobs to apply to, to teach theology at different places. But again, as God worked on my heart through life circumstances, I saw again, months later, some job postings for this thing called TLI. And I thought, ah, I should at least read what they do. And what, what is their mission? thing that popped out to me was we train pastors and other church leaders throughout the majority world who have little to no access to sound biblical training. Mm -hmm. And my heart just leapt. I thought these are three of the most uh, important things in my life, certainly, is uh, people understanding God through his word richly and responsibly. That being carefully educationally, to, to think through that carefully, and being cross-cultural, having lived for almost a decade in a different culture that was very close to my heart. Like, well, this puts them all together. I get to meet brothers and sisters around the world who are doing the hard work of pastoring and leading Christian communities, and, and who are struggling, and many of whom know they're struggling because they know they don't understand this massive book mm. and how to guide people in God's character especially when the main models in front of them are some of the miracle-working uh, prosperity teachers. And that's their only model. That, oh, I guess that's what pastoring is. I guess that's mm. how you interpret scripture. Mm. But they're hungry, hungry for, for thinking hard and feeling hard and acting hard according to scripture. And so they invite us there kind of grassroots desire. We don't force ourselves on them. If we get invited, we explore the relationship and then get to go interact with these brothers and sisters. So that's that's what TLI does. Travels a lot to train uh, men and women who are leaders in some capacity in Christian communities who don't really have much access uh, to, to sound theological training. Mm. You may or may not know that I helped start an underground seminary accredited in, in East Asia. And so this is very much my heartbeat. And one of the things I've appreciated about your writing is that you don't take teaching methodology and training methodology for granted. So mm -hmm. often people get their PhDs and so they become experts and they automatically assume that they know how to pass on that information to others and train other people well. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and you know, PhDs, people don't realize this, a lot of PhDs never get that kind of training. That's right. I want to dive into some of the stuff that you've written on this. And I want to just let people, listeners know that Jonathan's work, guys, is relevant not only for formal theological education, but also informal theological training and discipleship more general. So if you think, well, I'm not doing theological education cross-culturally, no, 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 no. There's a lot of stuff here. For that matter, heck, there's good stuff here for just learning in general and teaching in general. But there's going to be something a little bit for everybody. One of the things you say is that, you know, students tend to want their knowledge quantitatively expanded, but professors want to focus more on quality. And the one of the ways that you get at this is talking about motivation. This is one, the, one of the first articles that I read of yours that really jumped out at me. Mm -hmm. it, and you say, are we helping our students be motivated in the best way? And you said motivation is about kind as well as level, about quality as well as quantity. Now, 
for some people that may have gone over their heads. Motivation is about kind as well as level, about quality as well as quantity. Can you explain that? Because that's really key to so much of the stuff that you write on. Yeah, yeah. And it is hard to grasp. I, I, I know the, the journey very well of, of trying to think through motivation. Uh, I used to, to think about it only as more or less, so quantity. How do I help my students be motivated more to study? Some of them seem so unmotivated. How do they get motivated more? And that was the extent of my question. So I had a hunger, which I think was helpful. But as I started poking around in the, the literature on motivation and, and then experimenting with stuff, with, with some of it, I, I realized that there are different, different ways you can motivate a person or for yourself. There are different ways that we are motivated to do things. And some of those ways actually help you do good quality work if you're motivated in a certain way. But if you're motivated in a different way, that actually might undercut the very quality of the work you're trying to do. So for example, there are two, two very basic forms of motivation. So starting very, very simply, we can be motivated intrinsically to do something. So this could be work in a business, you know, you're, you have to write a report and you're just not motivated to write the report, but you have to do it. So how do you get motivated to do it and to do it well? Or it's in theological education. The student, you're given the student an essay to write, exegeting 1 Corinthians 7. They just need to do it. Well, how do they get motivated? Intrinsic motivation uh, looks at the person and the task they have. That is like a relationship. Okay, I need to do this task. I'm related to this task in some way. And if there's nothing beyond that, the, you and the task motivating you, uh, meaning you actually just enjoy doing this thing, it, you get you just get satisfaction doing this exegesis or writing this report. Pure satisfaction. You don't need anything to come from the outside and motivate you to do it. You just love it. That's called intrinsic motivation. And that's that's very powerful motivation if you love doing what you're doing. Now, to be clear, a lot of people think intrinsic means internal. It's coming from inside you. But you distinguish internal from intrinsic, right? That's right. And that gets really important later. So intrinsic motivation does happen internally. You know, anytime you enjoy something or are satisfied doing it, that is internal. So, so that's they're the same thing there. But there are other forms of motivation that would be called extrinsic, and I'll mention that in just a moment, but those can be highly internal, meaning you feel them deeply. It's not enjoyment. It's something different happening, but it's still happening internally. So thinking about it as internal to me in my psychology versus external, that's mm -hmm. not the right distinction. That'll mm -hmm. get us confused. It's about me and, and this thing I've been asked to do. Is it is it intrinsic to that relationship or does something have to come from the outside of that to motivate me to do it? So for for that extrinsic motivation, it could be something as simple as you're offered a reward or a, or a punishment, you know. So if you're in business and they say, oh, you got to write this report and um, and you'll get a bonus if you do it or or you get fired if you don't do it. <laughs> that might highly motivate you to do it. So you might not enjoy the task, the writing the report, or think about theological education. You know, you gotta, you gotta write that essay. 
And maybe you don't like the hard work of digging into the Greek of First mm. Corinthians 7 or reading about the Greco-Roman practices of, of, uh, of marriage and things like that. You just don't enjoy it, maybe. Mm -hmm. And a professor says, well, you got to do it. You have to do it to get to pass. Maybe even you have to do it well to get an A. So somebody might be highly motivated to get an A. Yeah. So they don't care about the task. They don't enjoy the task. Mm -hmm. So they have to reach outside of that relationship between them and the task. So extrinsic to that, yeah. I want the A or I don't want to fail. That external thing, external to my relationship with the task, that's motivating me to do the task, to get this other thing. Yeah. So that's called yeah. extrinsic motivation. Yeah. So, and that's like the lowest basic level. When people think of extrinsic motivation, they typically think right. of just that first level, reward, punishment, a carrot and stick. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's external and extrinsic. Mm -hmm. Right. But you actually have levels of right. extrinsic motivation that you say the type of motivation determines the depth of learning. Hey guys, I am the theologian in residence at a fantastic organization called Mission One who sponsors this podcast. We partner with the global church in making communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One partners with locally led ministries and denominations on projects, training, and relief efforts in their own communities. From clean water and education, to church planning and discipleship, to theological training and contextualization, Mission One desires to see every community transformed for the glory of God and the honor of all peoples. If you want to learn more about our work at Mission One, visit us at missionone.org. You actually urge people to, to use yeah, extrinsic motivation levels, but ones that go a little bit deeper. Can you talk about those other three levels? Yeah, I'll mention those three, but, but before I do that, let me mention something about the quality, because I mentioned it earlier that certain types of motivation actually help you do a task or undercut you doing the task. And, and so using the rewards and, and uh, punishment or the carrot and the stick, using that is really helpful for seeing this. If you're being told to do something, and, and it doesn't take much creativity to do it. It's fairly straightforward. Maybe you're a student and you're being asked to, to just do a proper bibliography. You know, it doesn't take any creative creativity to, to record the correct commas, the correct italics, the correct parentheses in the bibliography. You know, just do it. It doesn't take thinking. You just need to learn how to do it and do it. Well, that, that type of extrinsic motivation, offering a higher grade, that's totally fine. That's very good motivation for doing a task that doesn't take any outside-the-box thinking. Mm -hmm. So it's actually that type of motivation is helpful for a non-creative task. But in theology, like in so much else in life, so much of theology, so much of Christian thinking is kind of outside the box from what you might learn. So example, for example, I might learn from an essay you know, I can study 1 Corinthians 7. I've learned that. Yeah, but I get into to the world. Maybe I'm pastoring or, or doing something else in Christian ministry. How does, how does what I've learned in that task apply kind of outside that little narrow box? Somebody comes with, with issues in their marriage, 
oh, I didn't exactly do that in my essay in 1 Corinthians 7. So I need to think creatively about how what I did learn applies to a situation I've never really thought about before. Mm. That, I mean, that's demanding creative thinking. You, you don't just, you know, put the comma where the comma goes. This yeah. is like bust the box kind of stuff. Well, rewards and punishments, they, they put blinders on a person so that they can do a simple task and do it fast and well. But by putting blinders on a person, you're not allowing them to see outside of those. Mm. You can't, they can't see outside the box. So that type of motivation, just reward and punishment, actually cripples creative mm. thinking. So if you're a teacher and you want your student to do a task that involves creative thinking, and you're saying, I just want to motivate them more, so I'm going to give, give them a good grade and help them know that they'll get a really good grade if they do it. Mm. What you've done, you, you've used a type of motivation that actually undercuts their ability to do what you want them to do. Mm. as opposed to intrinsic motivation helping them actually learn to enjoy and be satisfied doing the exegesis intrinsic motivation enjoyment actually busts open the box and it equips them to think creatively and, and critically about something yeah. so that's that's kind of the basic thing what i mean by it's about it's not just about more or less motivated there are types of motivation that can actually equip your students or you, or undercut your students or you. But you're not saying that intrinsic motivation is essential for deep learning, right? Right. Some people do say that. But you're Some not. Say, but right? I'm not saying that. Yeah. Right. And I think that's important for Christian life. Because intrinsic motivation is specifically about enjoying or being satisfied with the task given. Mm -hmm. But what happens when you're given a task to learn from, and it's not enjoyable. And not only is it not enjoyable, it shouldn't be enjoyable. Like doing hard things and suffering. Yeah, you talk about Christ. Yeah. I, I didn't know if it was provocative or if it was just mundane. Mm -hmm. I didn't know. I just remember thinking, wow, I've never thought that way. You said that right. Christ was not intrinsically motivated to go to the cross, but he mm -hmm. was extrinsically motivated. Right. And, and at first year I go, uh, uh, hold on a minute. What? Say that again. <laughs> that sounds wrong. <laughs> That's right. But, but if I'm getting you right, you're saying that he didn't inherently enjoy getting nails in his hands and feet. Mm -hmm. He didn't inherently mm -hmm. enjoy getting beating, but right. there was a, the motivation was extrinsic. Mm -hmm. and, and so it really is about in, inherent enjoyment versus not enjoyment, but yet mm -hmm. there's very godly motivations that are extrinsic motivators. That's exactly right. But we yeah. tend to think of extrinsic merely as reward and punishment. Right. Okay. But like you, like you alluded to earlier, there are actually at least four different levels of extrinsic motivation, only the shallowest of which is reward and punishment. And the deeper you go with extrinsic motivation, the more profound it gets for, for learning that's creative and critical and, and transformative. Yeah, when I came across this in your article... I thought, this is gold. This is game-changing. Mm -hmm. Everybody mm -hmm. needs to know this and meditate on this and, and chew on it because it is a game-changer for how you think about your own heart and you, yeah. how you motivate people and lead people, so forth and so on. So could you kind of unpack those other uh, levels for people? Yeah. Yeah. So the shallowest extrinsic is reward and punishment. 
You're doing the task to get the other thing. So it's extrinsic. But you go a little bit deeper than that. And maybe your professor, so thinking about theological education again, maybe your professor tells you, not just I'm going to give you an A if you do this well, but he tells you, you know, this is actually, this is actually really good to do. Now, he might not help you understand why, but the fact that your professor, he or she thinks this is important and good to do, you, the student can kind of borrow that obligation. Um, so I call it obligation borrowed, the second level down. So they, they now are more motivated and more deeply motivated to do this thing that they don't enjoy, the, the essay or the, you know, going out and giving a talk that they, they hate doing. But they're more motivated and more deeply motivated because they're borrowing a sense of obligation from the authority figure. Mm. And that's, that, that's a good thing. That's, that's getting deeper and more profound. And they're going to learn it better than just going for the A or trying to avoid the F. So that's a second level of extrinsic. You go even deeper than that. So let's say the task is you need to stand up and give this, this sermon and you're terrified, you hate public speaking, but you're no longer just doing it for a reward or to, to, to not have a punishment. And it's not just that you're borrowing your authority figure's sense of obligation. Maybe you actually see that this is actually important mm. for what you already agree is important. Mm. So you're not borrowing that from somebody. You actually... Like preaching, like preaching uh, God's word is an important thing to do. Yeah. Even if it terrifies you to public speak. Right. You see that it's important. And so you're, you are more motivated and more deeply motivated to do it. And that will equip you to do it better because you're getting deeper in the extrinsic motivation. And these are like, have to do with abstract values. Yes. And, you know, guidelines for your life. So that's, it's, it's kind of abstract. Um, so one example in the literature is about recycling. Uh, let's say that you agree that recycling is good. So you're going you're gonna to be more motivated to recycle. It's kind of abstract. You, know, you agree that lots of things are good. So it is important. You see that, but it's kind of abstract. But this is where the next step, the fourth step down, um, kind of transforms the learning. Let's say with recycling, you don't just think it's abstractly important. You think that you can't really be who you're supposed to be as a human in a community. Uh, your very sense of identity is, I need to recycle. Mm -hmm. That is profound. And that's also highly internal. That's why you helped me make the distinction. Uh, this is not about external versus internal. It's that, you know, I, I don't, I still don't enjoy preaching. I actually do. So I'm putting myself in the shoes of somebody else. <laughs> you know, I, I don't enjoy preaching. So it's, I'm not intrinsically motivated to do it for its own sake. But I don't only value it abstractly anymore. I actually think that I can't be who God has called me to be mm. as a person, as a Christian in Christ, at, at, in a community. I can't be that identity if I don't do this. Yeah. Yeah. And that type of motivation, that's extrinsic because you're, you're trying to, to nurture your identity, not the enjoyment of the task itself. So it's extrinsic, but it is so deep. It's actually just as profound for uh, creative learning and critical learning and transformative learning as intrinsic motivation is. Mm -hmm. So I would, that's why I say, don't just go for intrinsic enjoyment, actually go for 
how is your identity identity affected by this? Because like, this is who I am. Like I, at a kind of mundane level, I think about maybe the 40 year old who, because that they did athletics, maybe all they're growing up and maybe in their twenties, they stay, they stay fit and exercise. They get up early because they say, I am an athlete. Like that's who I am. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just kind of a core value of there. So they go back and forth between identity and core value. Is, is right. that kind of a good analogy? Is that? Oh, that's great. Okay. Yeah. So that person is highly motivated. They might not enjoy the burn. Maybe they do, but maybe they don't enjoy the burn that comes from, from it, but, but they can't be who they think they should be if they mm-hmm. don't get up and do it. All right. So you say, uh, let's get into some, what this looks like in practice. Cause obviously mm-hmm. it'd be great to generate, nurture some intrinsic motivation. You get into that into the article, but let's mm-hmm. go to like that deepest extrinsic motivation. That is you talk about, that what we need to think about how to help students think deeply about the relevance of their training for their identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that's going to help them be not just more motivated, but better motivated. So right. what are some practical ways we can generate extrinsic motivation at that level? You know, mm-hmm. the value level is probably a little more obvious maybe to people because you espouse these values that you can agree on, but what about this identity level thing? What does that look like? Yeah. That's a, that's a great question. And that's something I still experiment with these. I try different ways. So the, the first step for me and my, my own growth as a teacher is, is to even just understand that there are different things going on in the human and different ways I can help motivate them that are better or worse. Once I've understood some of the, the categories, I've tried to experiment with different things in the actual classroom. And sometimes those totally fail. as happens, but that's helpful for learning. Sometimes they work really well. One of the ways that I've found, I've seen students be affected positively in terms of learning what I'm asking them to learn because it will shape their identity is is simply through having that frank conversation explicitly with the students, Mm. uh, drawing that out, Mm. Even, even asking them, you know, why do you think I'm having you do this? Wow. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm having you read this book and critically engage more than you ever had before. And it's tiring and it's frustrating and, you know, you don't necessarily like it. Why am I having you do it? And, uh, and start getting some feedback. And, and some of the students have no idea. And they might even say that. Other students have some really good insights. And then having this dialogue of mm. there's certain skills that you are going to gain in this in this task, this assignment I'm giving you, that are that are actually skills for life. Mm. I mean, even so, I've used this even with uh, helping students want to want to cite a, a book correctly. So, you know, I don't think that's actually as important as some professors do. I do think it's important cite things correctly, but you know, that's not a life changer. Mm-hmm. But, but there's a skill involved in looking at how the books say to, to record a bibliographic information mm-hmm. and, and doing it. It's like learning a different language. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like entering into another world that you don't understand yet and seeing a value in learning their way of doing things mm-hmm. so that you're more effective. Well, that's, a, that's actually a skill that is tremendously important for a Christian to have wherever they are. To be able to to go to a neighbor's house and, and you don't you don't think like them or or invite a neighbor into your house, 
and, and start talking with them or go to a different country and, and learn, well, how are they thinking? Mm. How are they, uh, not just their language, but their patterns of, of valuing things and practices and trying to learn as much as you can and even you know do things like them you know, as long as those are, are good and valuable things so as to be more effective in that relationship for sharing the gospel or discipling. Well, those are, those are actually the same skills as learning how to record bibliographic information. So you're like SPL uh, documentation is like another language. So I can add that to my, <laughs> I can add that to my CV. <laughs> that's right. You're, you're bilingual or quadlingual or whatever <laughs> it is. Whatever. That's right. And if, well, and if you know Chicago style and Harvard style, man. Oh my goodness. Top notch. You're a polymath. <laughs> that's right. So, so just practically, you know, yeah. have, drawing that out of the students, say there's actually bigger reasons that might even affect who you think you are or should be for why I'm having you do this. Yeah. And it's also attention to detail, attention to yeah. detail. Oh, yeah. You know, I think about, you know, I call it Mr. Miyaging it, you know, as you, you know, cause <laughs> as you, they learn all these commas and colons in the bibliography, all of a sudden it carries over to notice that little detail mm -hmm. of an argument that little detail of text or whatever else. Right. Paying attention to details is so crucial for life, not just for, you know, Chicago style. Yeah. Well, let me shift gears to adult learning because you really emphasize this a lot and you, you contrast pedagogy or pedagogy and, and, Andragogy. I keep wanting to say and androgyny, but that's that, that's a different thing. That's a different thing. Androgyny. Is that right? Did that I say it? Andra Andragogy. Andragogy. Ah, yeah. Yeah. And when you read the word, you never have to say it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So far, I've never written about androgyny. Okay. And, and don't and don't necessarily commend that in a <laughs> Again, this was part one of our conversation with Jonathan Worthington. Hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we will continue the discussion about theological education and focus a little bit more on the cultivation of virtue. See you then.